So listen, how might a therapist work to quickly and efficiently resolve maladaptive thought patterns and behaviors? Better yet, what are the advantages to simply telling a patient to get their act together? Today, we meet with Katherine James, licensed marriage and family therapist, and my philosophical twin, as we discuss our mission to ensure that our patients do ridiculously well in life by consistently delivering direct and concrete feedback. On the softer end of the theoretical spectrum, we will examine the role of spirituality in the therapy room and Catherine's experience of seeing actual specks of light or what she claims were angels dance across the walls during a session. Lastly, we will end with a Q&A. What kind of patients do we prefer to see? How do we take care of ourselves as therapists? And the all-important question, how to go about finding and choosing a therapist for yourself. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Today, I'm here with... Catherine. Catherine James. Like you, Ben, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. How do we know each other? We met very randomly and also serendipitously through your former, was it a roommate or colleague or both? Ro roommate and colleague. Roommate and colleague. And that's when we discovered that I was renting the office where you have an office and you made fun of my accent. I did. The first night that you met me. What did I say? Yesum. I said yesum. You did say yesum. Was I making fun of you? You were making fun of Maybe me. Maybe I was just uh, culturally adjusting to your strange diction. Maybe you were. I actually think you're envious that I have an accent and you don't. <laughs> I have always. <laughs> yesum, I am. I think you, you're very envious. If I had your accent, I would make more money and I would have more girlfriends. You probably so. And more <laughs> wives and many children. Probably so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all right. So I'm here with Catherine James, and we are going to talk about therapeutic styles today. The reason I'm going to do that is because I have a very direct style, and Catherine more or less does as well. And it is my opinion that many therapists these days have a what I call a sit and nod technique, where they sit there and look at you and say, mm-hmm, uh-huh, oh, and empathize with your situation when they really actually probably don't give a shit. And they're charging you a lot of money to sit there and nod and look at you and be nice and repeat back what you just said. There's a joke that my therapist Seymour told me about the, I think it was back in the 70s when this sort of, I guess, Rogerian therapeutic technique was really getting popular. And this guy said, I'm feeling really depressed. And the therapist goes, you're feeling really depressed. And the client says, I'm going to go jump out that window. And the therapist says, you're going to go jump out the window. And the client gets up and jumps out the window and falls down and dies. And the therapist says, splat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's what I think of nodding, nod therapy. Catherine, what is your conception of what I'm talking about right now? The sit and nod therapist, in my opinion, is outdated because today, in my experience as a therapist, the clients are really coming in for direction, possibly a different connection than they were 20 plus years ago because our interface is changing. We're high tech, low touch. And when they're able to come in and get that direct feedback, it soothes an anxiety. And what tone of voice do you use with, with patients when you're being direct? How do you speak to them? Like, what does it sound like? Yeah. Like this. 
how I'm talking now. If I know them and if I know that they can take some really heavy feedback coming to them, my body language changes. I usually lean over in my chair and I like spread my legs a little bit and put my hands down. (laughs) Kind of get in that like, I'm really leaning into you right now and I'm Mm going to speak to you very, very clearly and look you very directly in the eye. Catherine is not my therapist, but she's given me talkings to and you walk away you kind of feel like like you've stood in the line of fire of a flamethrower, but it was good for you. Really? I've done that to you before? Many times. I'm so glad. And uh, that's what it feels like? I wonder. You know, my father used to do that to me. That's where I get it. It's kind of like you get in the coaching stance. <laughs> I call it the coaching stance that's in your chair. Interesting. Ben, I think that we are direct as therapists because we genuinely want to see people not do well but fucking well. Yeah, we want them to take over the world. We do. We want them to do ridiculously well. I think that there's a part of somebody that doesn't believe they can do well. Everyone Agreed. The, the advantage of being direct when you're a therapist is that you can sort of step into their psyche and be that voice mm-hmm. that they don't have or that counters the voice that says that they can't do it. I think a lot of folks have trouble with like if they had bad parenting. Mm-hmm. Or no parenting. Or no parenting. Or it, no parenting. And one of the things that parents do is that they instill programming in their children to make them believe that they can make it. At any rate, this is a really concrete way of looking at uh, how a therapist can really help a patient with wounding. If the patient hasn't had the proper encouragement and that voice or has a negative voice, maybe they had a parent that told them they were a piece of shit and they weren't going to amount to anything, the therapist can be in there and, and argue with that voice. It's almost like downloading a program into your memory. It's pretty visceral. And I don't feel like a sit and therapist can do that. Agreed. It just couldn't happen. I don't know where this idea comes from that being assertive and direct in therapy is somehow a bad thing. There are therapists who think it's malpractice to do that kind of thing. You know, therapists think that. Then what's the point of going to therapy? I don't understand. I don't either. I went to a therapist for years, and this was when I was in my 20s and not discerning as well, to where my therapist was a sit and nod therapist. And I was under the influence of what grad school had taught me. Uh-huh. to do that and kept going to him and it made me fucking more anxious and I was doing self-destructive stuff and he never said hey listen Chica you're doing self-destructive stuff yeah so stop it yeah and I would have appreciated if he said hey get your fucking act together how many times have you told a patient to get his or her fucking act together all the time in those words yeah that's fantastic after I know them a little well enough and I know yeah. I'm not gonna offend them by cussing you know some yeah. people are like no you don't cuss in front of them no it's like in the south you don't say goddamn mixed company you don't no you don't you don't that is a that is a rule in the south don't say goddamn the mixed company Interesting, okay right uh, note to self if i go to south yeah when well, you come to visit you can't say GD. just don't talk no you can say no i won't talk because i'll say the wrong thing <laughs> I'll, I'll say something stupid no you won't no i will bring the wrath of the south down upon my head but southerners are actually pretty fiery yeah uh, we are y- that's where y- i get it from y- y'all had a civil war <laughs> No, it was the war of northern aggression. Regardless, there was a war there that happened. But yeah, I do say you got to get your fucking act together. Mm -hmm. And then I usually will say after that or it towards the end of session, like, listen, you know that I have a lot of love for you and I am looking out for your best interest. And they always look up to me and they smile and some of them cry and they go, thank you, Catherine. Oh, that's sweet. And then they walk out of the office and sometimes they'll turn around and they'll give me a hug. And then they walk out of the office and they don't say anything. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had a patient give me a hug. Well, it it might be because you're a dude. I don't know. I think it's because I'm really defensive looking. I had one woman kind of walk out of my office and she kind of looked like she wanted to give me a hug. And I just kind of glared at her like, no, that's not happening. (laughs) 
I'm not actually a huggy person, but some of them. You're a huggy person. I'm, I don't you'd know. hug a you'd hug a lamp post. <laughs> you hug everything. <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't. So. Well, you have here. I see a train coming. Oh, that is a phrase that I use a lot. Can you talk about that phrase? Mm-hmm. Let me back up a little bit. When people call me and they say, "Well, I'm looking for a therapist," I'll ask, "What are they looking for?" to see if it's in my scope, see if I'm interested. Blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask them, "Do you want to know about more about how I work?" Mm-hmm. And they say yes, and I tell them, "I say mm-hmm. I am very direct, mm-hmm. I'm very honest with you, and I also." will tell you what I see. So if I see a train coming mm-hmm. and you don't see it, I'm going to tell you to get out of the way. And that is what we call discernment. And discernment is very different from judging or mm-hmm. being judgmental, mm-hmm. which I am finding in my experience, a lot of people don't know the difference. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. And they're afraid of making a statement about something because they're saying, well, I'm being judgmental. It's like, no, just call it what it is. What do you see? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't do that because I'm being judgmental. Who cares then? Just say the thing. And there is a difference between being judgmental and being discerning. When you have a train coming at you and you can't see it because you're blinded, you have a blind spot, I feel that it's the therapist's responsibility to say, hey, a train is coming. Get out of the way. One thing that I attack a lot are what I call maladaptive thought structures. Seymour always said that you can't differentiate perception from judgment. Essentially, what he's saying is that when you look at a thing, you judge it to be that. You can't get out of that. I don't believe there's a human being on this earth that can look at something and not put a value judgment of some kind on it. Because as soon as you observe it, you do that. I don't care who you are. I think anyone that does is deluding themselves and is arrogant. A lot of times I find that people who try to say, I'm non-judgmental or I don't, I'm not judging that, or they'll correct somebody because they're being judgmental, mm-hmm. are trying to put themselves above that person. And in so doing are, in effect, judging them as being less than themselves because they are on this higher plane of existence and they don't judge a thing. Oh no. At any rate, that's like a maladaptive structure in their brain. When I see a structure that's not serving somebody. It's a maladaptive paradigm. Sure. And what I do when I see those things, it's like I want to crush them. I see it as like almost a, like a bunch of little pins, arrested pins looked up in their brain and creating this horrible Mm -hmm. result. And I just go smash. And it seems to work because you don't need to be soft about, it's like a a chiropractor, you know, and they go in and they crick. It's like that. You just kind of go, you don't always do this. There's like a wound in someone that goes really, really deep. You don't do that. Usually maladaptive paradigms or thought structures arise from wounding. Of course. Right? So let's say somebody had a non-approving parent. And so they have a thought structure where they unconsciously make statements that put themselves above other people. Wherever they go, they're always worrying about, what the people think and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So in the short term, in a very direct way, I will work on that thought structure and mm-hmm. attack it and call it out and address it and say, look, this is what you're doing. This is what I'm seeing. And this is not serving you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had a patient who would always go off on, you know, clerks at stores. Mm-hmm. I'm like, bro, that does not serve anybody. You are acting out some sort of wounding. I don't know what, mm-hmm. but it is not healthy. Chill out. And that seems to work. But the underlying wounding is something you work on later. That's the deeper end of therapy. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You do cognitive restructuring? Well, that's what that is. I mean, cognitive... Yeah, re- but do you like get them to write out the new cognition to... Re- to no, I no. Do. I just speak it out and I don't forget and I nag them about it. <laughs> okay. Well, good for you. No, what I do with with mine is on the whiteboard. If I get... I have a little whiteboard in the mm-hmm. office. Is like whatever the thought is, then we restructure it with a new adaptive thought. And then I get them because I know like neurologically they are replacing mm-hmm. that 
old maladaptive thought with the new thought. They go through the fake it till they make it because mm -hmm. it's the new neurological pathway that's sure. being recreated. So, and then they act upon it. Because I'm finding personally and professionally, it all starts with a thought. All thoughts take form, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all really tapping into what you're thinking. Most people don't know what they're thinking. They're not aware. They're not, they're not aware of what they're thinking. And your job as a therapist, when you point out that, hey, you're thinking a thing, because yeah. for them, it's just reality. It's like that story, oh, David Foster Wallace made it really famous, of the, you know, the two fish the old fish i hate this story because but it's good i hate it because i keep hearing it <laughs> mm -hmm. but there's a there's two fish and they're swimming around and this old fish swims by the young fish and says hey boys how's the water this morning mm -hmm. and one fish looks at the other and says what's he talking about the idea is of course that the older fish is more awake about mm. the reality and i think as therapists we kind of point out hey you know because no people don't realize that they're swimming in their own shit <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it's like, how's the shit this morning? What shit? What are you talking about? Well, let's see. You yelled at your wife. Uh, you were a snot to your kids. And you walked in here and threw your cap down on the couch and plopped down and, and nearly broke one of the springs in my nice new you know, designer, whatever the fuck I have in my office. Sofa. And you're being a sofa and you're being a shithead. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. Oh. Oh. And they start looking around. They start seeing the shit everywhere that there's shit all around them <laughs> that they didn't know was there and that's one of the ways direct feedback can work really really well and i think of all the missed opportunities that therapists i think therapists a lot of them are afraid of their patients i think they're afraid of life yeah i'm afraid of themselves i have to tell this joke okay because you mentioned fish <laughs> i like fish you know why Tallulah bankhead went and drank water Tallulah who Tallulah bankhead she went and drank water I don't even know who that is, but why would Tallulah Bankhead go drink water? No, not drink water. Why would she not drink water? Fish fucking it. What? Fish fucking it. Who's Tallulah Bankhead? She's like one of the most famous 1920s movie stars that there was. And she said that? Yeah, she's from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> My grandfather, Tallulah Bankhead's uncle, were like BFFs. So, for those of you listening at home, uh, you Catherine, know also Tallulah Bank <laughs> Catherine James is, comes from Alabama royalty, and everyone who's important is somehow related to her family tree in There's Alabama. only four million people in Alabama, Ben. It's not that hard. Four million's a lot. We've been there since 1856. By this time, we're pretty much related to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what also Tallulah Bank has said? Are you related to your husband? No, he's from Maryland. Oh, he is? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you checked? I should. You probably should. No, but should. he's Catholic, so okay. there's no way. Um, what? What did Tula Bankhead say? No, this is great. This is one of my favorites. Okay. <clears throat> she said, my daddy warned me of uh, men and booze, but never said a word about women and cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Of course, not everybody's doing cocaine. You were talking about, oh, oh, why are therapists so afraid? Well, yeah. I don't know why therapists are afraid. I don't either. Maybe it's, is it the training in grad school? Well, I was in grad school I think, so long ago. I think part I of it don't is. I remember what I learned. Yeah, I think there's a lot of legal shit. Well, is, me, is it the legals? What are they going to get sued for? It's he said versus she said. I just think that's the environment we live in, that you don't touch anything. Like, here's the thing. Like, over at, in Macy's, um, uh -huh. it, uh, it's in San Francisco. There's a Macy's where 10% um, of their inventory is stolen per year. 10%. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because there's a whole procedure that they have to go through before mm -hmm. they can arrest somebody mm -hmm. for stealing. 
-hmm. or they'll get because they're afraid of getting sued right and if they don't meet all the little criteria the person can just walk out with whatever they want and this is for a lot of department stores and a lot of places yeah. not just macy's but Nordstrom's and you know you name it mm -hmm. and so we have this culture where we can't touch anything we can't do anything you know mm -hmm. i remember when seymour would say why don't you just punch that guy in the face and i'm like seymour you're 90 years old and during the great depression you could do that and get away with it in this day and age someone will take a video of it They'll upload it to Facebook. You'll go to jail. You'll get doxxed. You'll lose your job. Uh, you will be publicly shamed for years because of whatever you did on the corner of, you know, Chestnut and Divisadero mm -hmm. in San Francisco for mm -hmm. two minutes. Mm -hmm. We just live in a culture where every time something kind of comes in contact with something else, it's a big deal. But that's what's causing people not to have discernment in their life. The lack of discernment leads to no boundaries, leads to nothing is sacred, and that is dangerous. And Ben, I also believe that leads to people not being personally responsible. Because this is what I tell every client that comes in my room. Two things. One, you are personally responsible for everything that happens in your life. Two, you create your reality. They hate it when I say both of them. They really hate it when I say point two. Is that you create your reality yeah yet i believe those two maxims right there end up not creating a victim because mm -hmm. i don't like it when my clients get into victim mode yeah because that is so disempowering everything is done to them it's somebody else's fault they're blaming blah 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 poor me i'm helpless i'm powerless mm -hmm. i don't write my story you have to be fully personally responsible for everything in your life. That means being fully and personally responsible for your healing. And nobody can do it for you. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So I find it completely disempowering for a therapist or for anybody, rather, even if it's a group of friends or a teacher or a boss or whomever, to agree with somebody's victimization story. Yeah, Seymour told me a story about this couple that came in. Their previous therapist had sourced all of their problems to the fact that they were incest survivors. They would go on and on and on about how they were incest survivors, and they just somehow connected every problem with their personality and their lives and the fact that they were incest survivors. And he just called them out on it, and they sure didn't like it, because suddenly they have to hold all of their own shit. Um, I don't love the book, uh, was it The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck? I read part of it. It's not bad. Yeah. It's basically regurgitated Buddhism, but okay. he did say that what happened to you is not your fault, but you are responsible for your own pain. If you were molested as a child, it is your responsibility as a human being to work that out mm -hmm. and figure it out. Yeah, exactly. What are some of the maxims or phrases that you tell your clients? I mean, I've got the one at the end of my podcast that I always sign off with, which is if you find that your plate is full, sometimes you need to take stuff off the plate or you just need to get a bigger plate. I like that one. Yeah, and getting, I actually like that one a lot. Yeah, and getting a bigger plate is, entails like self-care and getting asking for help and learning to express your feelings and not being you know a stoic male <laughs> or whatever you are, whatever, whatever you have going on that, that doesn't allow you to really grow yourself. Um, other maxims? Um... I don't know, grow the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. I, like uh, I, I use that one. Um, not too liberally and not with mm -hmm. everyone, of course, as you say. Like if I have a teenager, I would never say something like that to a teenager because they're a teenager. Obviously. Their job is to not kind of not grow up mm -hmm. um, in a way. Uh, I wouldn't say that to somebody who was, you know, really, really fragile. Of course. Again, what we are doing is discerning 
when it's appropriate. When it's appropriate. And the thing about this podcast is that everybody knows about all the other stuff. We're just talking about the stuff that you don't hear about, which is the really in-your-face stuff. So we're kind of making it sound like this is all we do, but this is not all Catherine and I do. We're just mm-hmm. talking about it, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, other maxims. Um, I, n- I made up none of these. If you don't sit with the pain, the pain will sit you down. Oh, yes. Nice one. This is one from AA. Expectations are resentments waiting to happen. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. You know, one from AA that I love is you're as sick as your secret. I don't agree with it. You don't agree with that? I think some things are secret for a reason. I think that's like 85% true. Most of the time, your secrets make you sick. Mm-hmm. And especially with alcoholism, because if you're drinking and hiding it, mm-hmm. for sure. you're gonna, it's going to kill you. And so most of the time in AA, if you really speak all of your secrets, you'll be in better shape. Uh-huh. But I do think that there's that 15 to 10% time where it's... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. There's another one. There's a quote by Aeschylus. It's about, I don't know, 3,000 years old. Mm -hmm. It goes, he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our despair against our will, wisdom comes to us by the awful grace of God. Mm. And that's a nice one. And that's not one you bludgeon somebody with. You know, that's when someone's like really in it and they're in a lot of pain. Mm Mm-hmm. What's your conception of spirituality with clients? I'm careful, like in the Bay Area, there's a lot of, and I'm going to say this, anti-Christian thought. And you say the word God and everyone gets round up and starts talking about, How dare you say God? I'm so offended. Yeah. (laughs) I like the AA version of like the higher power, but I use the word God in a kind of an academic sense. Mm -hmm. And Jung associated the concept of God as the great mystery and the soul and the spirit and not the Christian God. And I usually come to a point in my therapy with patients where I'll say, look, I'm going to start using the word God. This is what I mean. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Christian here. And I find myself paraphrasing it. And I'll paraphrase, you know, Jesus said some cool shit. Like he said, you know, the kingdom of heaven layeth at our feet and we know it not, which is amazing, which is basically like Mm -hmm. your life is awesome and you don't even know it, you asshole. Yeah. And and that's really cool. Yeah. And there's all sorts of really cool stuff in the Bible Mm -hmm. that's beautiful. Oh, yeah. And I am afraid to use that in sessions. You are? Oh, I'm not. Really? Can you talk about that? Because I can use your accent. Does your accent allow you to do that? Um. You know, it's really funny you picked up on that because when I'm going to say something provocative in session, I my accent is stronger, and I think that's why I get away with it. So should I copy like a southern accent when I want to say something really trenchant? Sweetheart, you have to go live in the south for like 20 years to get the proper southern accent. Sweetheart, and hear that, folks? And you know what? I call my clients that all the time. Sweetheart? Uh-huh. And they can't, they're defenseless. I think they love it. My clients, too, are in a way sort of like my kids. Really? Because I love them so freaking much. Mm. I do. I get really excited about them. You've seen me with clients before. I have an enormous amount of love for them. So I'll call them like sweetheart or okay, honey. You know, and I'll work also, too, with a lot of women. So Mm -hmm. I think when it comes from a female therapist going to a female client, it lands lands a little bit differently. Yeah, I imagine it does. Or if it's with a male client... It's so much in the so of the dynamic that they know I'm really looking out for them and I care a lot about them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of maybe protective big sister. What were we? Oh, we were talking about God. You asked me how I address spirituality in session in mm-hmm. therapy. In my intake, I'll ask them, are you spiritual or religious? Did you grow up in any tradition? In the first several sessions, I pay real close attention to what they say and what they're telling me and not. Then I can usually pick up on it if mm-hmm. they are open to being spiritual or not. I have seen some pretty 
amazing transformations happen with people who have come in who did not believe that anything other than the earth existed to mm-hmm. where they ended up going out on a massive spiritual path. And that has been a beautiful metamorphosis to see. Why do you think people need spirituality? Because we're spiritual beings living a human life. Well, what, what, because I mean, an atheist can be spiritual. Sure. Right? Absolutely. And in my opinion, there's no discernible difference between a really spiritually engaged atheist and a really spiritually engaged monk or Catholic priest. They all seem to do the same things. They all talk to a deeper part of themselves. Mm-hmm. They just have different names for it. So do you feel that an atheist, though, is at some sort of disadvantage? No, not necessarily. Okay. I've never even out- thought about it. Okay. Do you? I don't know. Sometimes. I feel like someone who disabuses the idea that there is more happening than just this reality is disabusing themselves the idea that there's meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. And they end up making some very strange decisions and going very strange places with it. Yeah. Because if there's no if there's no meaning to things, if things right. don't have meaning, what's the point of it all? I would agree with that. I think that when you say there is meaning, you you have to kind of end up with the idea that there is a god in a sense, mm-hmm. that there is a higher or greater or deeper power, that there is a moreness to all this existence. In the psychological sense, meaning is assigned by the human psyche, by the ego. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that, that lamp is sentimental to me because it belonged to my grandmother. That's mm-hmm. meaning. But in my view, human beings naturally, their psyche is made up of these archetypal building blocks of mm-hmm. male versus female energy. Up, down, light, dark, evil, good. Good and evil, I feel, are innate. we innately understand that. I don't believe it's a human construct. I believe it is. It's like bone deep. I would and, agree with that. But a lot of people wouldn't, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I find that people that do believe that end up making healthier decisions. I would totally agree with that. Let's talk about therapists who are overly goal-oriented. How might a therapist get so direct and so goal-oriented that the therapy collapses? It wouldn't be personal enough, and it wouldn't be warm enough. It would have a lack of flow. Okay. Because one thing, as we're talking here, I'm also doing a deeper reflection of what has made my style be this way. Mm -hmm. I would say growing up in a small town in Alabama, my family was seen as a pillar of loyalty, as a pillar of friendship, as a pillar of leadership, and very upstanding family. If there was something going on in your life, you went to my mom you went to my father, or you came to one of us. My father was one that would go sit in the mud with people. And for the therapeutic process, when somebody comes in and they're really wounded or they're hurt or they're sad and whatnot, I picture myself sitting in the mud with them. That's why if they tell me, you know, their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them and they cry, sometimes I'll cry Uh because I'm really with them. Even though I'm still direct, it's not a defensive directness. Mm -hmm. It's more of the directness of like, I'm in your corner with you. And when you start moving to a deeper place in the therapy, what kind of interventions do you do? What's the non-direct Catherine James like in therapy? I think the room gets very, very quiet. Mm -hmm. And I almost start to whisper. Mm. What kind of uh, observations do you make? Or do you make observations at all? Occasionally. By now, I my work is so intuitive. I don't really know what I do anymore. I do know yeah. what I do, but I don't. But in those moments, it's just very, it gets very intuitive. Mm. And like if I hear something, and that's usually like the committee talking, mm-hmm. I'll say it. What do you mean by the committee? It, well, I'm a little bit clear auditory. What does that mean? It means you hear you hear what to say. And I think it's spirit talking to me. 
I get that feeling too. I have ideas that come to me. They seem to come out of nowhere. Exactly. I'm... And you know what, Ben? A lot of times I'm talking in session. I don't even know what I'm saying because it's spirit talking. I swear huh. to God it is. Jung talked about the therapeutic crucible that therapist and patient enter and they become like a third substance. There's a third thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. That's why rapport is so important. And that's why meaning is so important, I mm -hmm. think. There's a completely mysterious and undefinable process that happens. Mm -hmm. It is. You're right. And it's, I think it's really beautiful. It's hard to talk about. Like As I speak about this, I find myself searching for ways to describe this thing that, like, I, this must be boring to listen to right now. I'm wondering if someone's like in their car thinking, what are these idiots talking about? <laughs> <laughs> As, and I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what we're talking about. I had this idea. Every time he'd come in, I'd see angels everywhere. Now we're making a distinction here between we're discerning between actual hallucinations and a kind of a almost I suppose artistic or spiritual sense that there's something else in the room. Yeah, visual, there's definitely something else in the room. And a visual that kind of comes to mind, not something that she's literally seeing on the wall. No, I do literally see them. That's what you don't understand. You do literally see angels? I see them. You see, you literally see a concrete like thing. No, it's light. It's specks of light, and I know it's an angel. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. Wow. That that I stand corrected. Yeah, I don't. That, that doesn't happen to me. And that's the evolution that has taken place in the therapeutic practice. So much of it is intuitive. Yalom said something like that too. He's like, after a while, the therapist can no longer teach how to be a therapist. It's all intuitive. Yeah, Seymour said the best compliment he ever received from a patient was, I don't know what you did last week, but it sure worked. I talked to Seymour for like five to ten minutes. I loved him. Yeah, what did he say to you? What fool thing came out of his mouth? <laughs> he was very direct. I called him in a client consult, and he was so direct. I just loved it. I got more out of that consult in ten minutes than I would have gotten out of three hours of lectures. <laughs> <laughs> with good. some like fool up there yeah he knew his stuff didn't he he did he was great i miss him even though i never met him but i miss him yeah do you miss him i do i do he was my therapist for a very long time and you know a big compliment i get from clients mm. is they'll say catherine i was doing x and i kept hearing your voice i kept hearing your voice say this mm -hmm. that's the biggest compliment do you ever get over invested in a patient how so? Probably. I'll well, like sure. you really want them to be really rooting for them and they just kind of take over your, and it's just like you're, you're consumed by, you find them creeping in outside a session into your head. I'm always thinking about clients. Well, now, okay, I will say this. Before I had a baby, I was always thinking about clients, but I can't help it. It's my fucking art. Yeah. Now that I've had a baby and I'm not seeing as many, they don't creep into my head as much. Okay. They do. But usually, this is another way to where I feel that, you know, I can be really intuitive. A lot of times I'll email a client or a client that I haven't seen in a while and say, hey, you just crossed through my thoughts. A lot of times they were like, they'll email me back. Oh, my God, I was just emailing you right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of the universe or God or whatever saying, hey, this person is, you know, in need. Or But do you ever find that it it's too much? Absolutely. Yeah. When I was seeing loads of, you know, 20 plus clients a week, almost mm -hmm. 30 clients a week. Absolutely. How do you take care of yourself as a therapist? That's a really beautiful question. I'm going to answer this pre-baby. Okay. I would usually end by 2 or 3 o'clock on a Friday. I would not see clients after that because I wanted a good long weekend. The basics, hydrate a ton, eat really, really well, sleep, and exercise. Those were the basics. I had a big visualization of cutting cords when I would leave the office. One of my mentors taught me that. When I left Walden House after my traineeship, I got really attached to those clients. The week that I ended, I had a horrible migraine to where I had to go to the hospital to get a shot of Imitrex. I couldn't even open my eyes. 
And I called my mentor and I told him, and he said, you're too attached to your clients and you have all of these cords coming out of your head and you got to do some cord cutting. And he said, when you leave the building and you shut the door, picture the cords being cut off at your head and you do that. And so anytime I would shut the office door, I would picture the cords being cut off and they would all be there. The other thing, another mentor of mine told me, well, he's not really a mentor, he's a medium. He told me, and I thought this was one of the most empowering things I have ever been told. And I tell my clients this all the time. Mm-hmm. When you worry about somebody, you disempower them. Because mm. you send them a crappy energetic care package in the mail. Oh, never thought about that. So that really helped dissipate my worrying. And then I just built a life outside of therapy and outside of work. When I got married, I realized I have to take care of my marriage. I have to really be invested in my relationship with my husband and had a really nice group of friends, not a ton because I'm an introvert. So I just need a handful. And anybody else who was draining and sucking there, it was like, adios amiga. And I have a nice life. That's how I take care of myself. How do you take care of yourself? I know you do jujitsu. Yeah, uh, writing and cooking activities, time with friends. I had another person tell me, she's a Reiki healer. She said, your work as a therapist, it's not like your bank teller. You don't clock in and clock out. You never clock out. Mm-hmm. You, never, you, don't ever do, you don't ever clock out. At least I didn't. Do you clock out? No. No. You always think about it, right? And I get texts and calls and all the time. Right. I know, yeah. right? And I answer them. Exactly. And I answer them too. And I would tell my clients, if you call me, I will pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. How do people go about choosing a therapist? How do you? I don't know how people choose a therapist. How do people choose a I don't a know. Therapist? I'm looking for a therapist. I don't know how to do it. Someone to tell me. Well, they used to find me either word of mouth or on Yelp or. The problem is, is it's an expensive choosing process, you know, because you have to go in and see the damn therapist. I and know. then not only do you have to pay them, but then if you don't like them, you got to reject them, and that's no fun. Well, the question is, is, does the therapist choose the client, or does the client choose the therapist? Oh, fuck me. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. You know, I think by this point, I think people are just led. I had another a life coach of mine tell me, your inner advertising is a lot greater than your outer advertising. And your clients, the ones who you're meant to work with, they'll yes. come to you. And I really believe that. Every time I ratchet down at my other job, like I, I work fewer days, I get more patience. Of course you do, because you're making more work. I had a hard time buying that energetic concept, but it seems to be the case. It does. And you know what? I had another life coach of mine tell me, write down your ideal client. And I do. And I read it every day now of who I want to work with. Who's your ideal client? One, on time, polite. I have a thing about politeness. I'm from the South. I don't care if you come in there and cuss a blue streak, but you are not to call me a bitch. Have you had a client do that? No. If I did, I don't remember it. Maybe at Walden House, that was years ago. I don't remember. Yeah. I did have a client throw me across a room one time. Really? Yeah, at Walden House. Now, that scared the fuck out of me. I bet it did. He was a big dude, too. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that really scared me. Yeah. Good yeah. Lord. What was that story? He um came up dirty on a UA. Uh-huh. I was telling him to get on the bench because at Walden House, you came out dirty on a UA and the, in the hallway, you had to get on the bench. You had to sit on the bench uh-huh. until the big wigs came in and dealt with you. Yeah. <laughs> and he wouldn't get on the bench. I mean, it was just as much as my fault as his. Yeah. I was being reactive. It was sure. years ago. What's the hardest thing for you to talk about with a client? Like when they bring us up a certain subject, when do you go in your mind? Oh, fuck. Probably sex. Really? Say more about that. Ooh, I'm interested. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Did you just go, oh, fuck, in your mind? Many times, over and over again. <laughs> no pun intended. Oh, man. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just don't think it's my subject. Really? Yeah. You mean, like, them having sex with a female or? or whatever, anyone having sex with anybody. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I talk about sex a lot. Yeah, I don't. Do you talk about money? Yeah, all the time. See, that's what's interesting. You talk about money a lot. Tell me about money. That used to be a really uncomfortable subject. Money? I mean, just, the, you know, make enough of it and, and what does it feel like to not make as much as your partner or to get a promotion or not get the promotion, you know? Um, sometimes with teens, I talk about what the value of a dollar means because they, they don't get that. This, you know, if we got a teenage client that's using, he's, you know, running out of his allowance and he's using Postmates to have weed delivered to his front door, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing either of those things, buddy. Why did you decide be- to become a therapist? I was doing this woman and I'm like, wow, I really want to marry her and have kids, but I can't do that farting around like I am. So I went back to school and we broke up and I stayed in school. And I think it'll be good at it. And I was kind of resistant going in, but I'm glad I did it. Do you love it? Yeah, it's good. It's good work. It's good solid work. What's your favorite type of client? I don't know. I like people between the ages of like, you know, I don't know. I like human beings. I like the human race. Anyway, is there anything else? Are we done? It's your show. I think we're done. I think we're done. Well, Catherine James, thank you so much for bringing your brilliance and your southern accent to my, my little world out here in San Francisco. I appreciate it. And thank you. So... I will most likely be back. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I look forward to our... Maybe every six months we'll do one. Every six months. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by visiting my website at benjaminrusick.com. In addition, I encourage you to subscribe, like, leave comments, and all the rest. Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.